It is a privilege to be with you this morning. It's always an honor to herald the word of God and to be asked to come and do so for such a dear church makes it a double honor. So thank you, Brother Rick, for the invitation. And by extension, thank you, church, as well. Let's pray and we'll get into God's word. Well, Father, we are so grateful to gather this morning. Grateful to gather as your people. You have called us out of the world and have called us to yourself. And you've also called us to one another. And Lord, what a privilege it is to sit under your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see truth, ears to hear truth, and most importantly, hearts to apply truth. Speak to us now by the living word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like us to consider the topic of Christian prayer this morning, and most specifically, uh, I'd like to think about prayer as a means of grace. If you wanted a title for this sermon, that would be it. Prayer as a means of grace. And I am interested in asking and hopefully partially answering a specific question, which is this. What does a prayer that results in the reception of God's grace look like? Or to put it more simply, what does a prayer that God answers look like? How do we pray as God's people in order to receive God's grace? Now, we mentioned Matthew 6 a moment ago, but uh, poor Rick, I changed my mind. We're going to end up in Luke 11 eventually here. I, I wanted to go with that version of the Lord's Prayer. But first, to set the table a little bit, I'd like to look at a familiar story in 1 Kings chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, I would please invite you to open there to 1 Kings chapter 18. In 1 Kings 17, we are introduced to one of the most consequential prophets in the Old Testament. He went by the name of Elijah. And Elijah lived in the days of evil King Ahab when he reigned in Israel with his even more evil wife Jezebel at his side. And both of them were worshipers of Baal, the false god of Baal. And they were on a campaign to kill anyone associated with the religion of Yahweh. And in chapter 18, we have the famous showdown between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It it reads like an old western with the groups meeting for a duel at high noon. And I want to pick up the story in verse 25 of 1 Kings 18. Essentially, the challenge is this. Both sides will set up a sacrifice and they will have a certain amount of time to get their God to send down fire to consume the sacrifice. And whichever God does that is the winner, is the true God. And as we read, what I want you to especially note is how both sides attempt to get their God's attention. Pay attention to how they try to receive their God's grace. So beginning in verse 25, I'm reading from the NASB. It says, So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. And they took the ox, which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. 
but there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. Verse 28, So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention. Now pause there for a moment. Before we see what Elijah does, Let's just pick out some of the things that the prophets of Baal attempted to do here to court their God's favor, to get his attention. Uh, First, there's a lot of them. 450 prophets of Baal crying out to them. Second, in verse 26, it says that they leaped about the altar which they made. You'll notice that that you've got a little footnote there in your Bible with the NASB where that word leaped could also be translated as limped, which many other English versions opt to do. And the idea here is of a ceremonial movement that was designed to provoke the sympathies of Baal. They, They were trying to look pitiful with their limping around. And after some of this, verse 28 says that they began to cut themselves to the point that the blood gushed out of them. Surely their suffering would get Baal to pity them, to look upon them and show them grace. And in verse 29, we have the word raved being used to describe them. That word in the Hebrew has very religious overtones, so we get the picture that they are working themselves up into some kind of a religious fervor, or even we could say a religious frenzy. They are desperate, and they are trying everything that they can think of to get their God's attention. Now, here's the thing, and it's really not that complicated. It turns out that when you make up your God, you also have to make up what your God wants. When the prophets of Baal were attempting to get their God's favorable attention, they were essentially throwing everything against the wall to see if anything would stick. And the reason why is because, as I just said, Baal is a made-up God, like all idols are, and therefore they had to make up what got their God's attention. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He says, everybody knows that God exists. Every human being has that innate knowledge. But some refuse to acknowledge the true God. So what do they do with that innate knowledge that there is a God? Well, they they, they make it up. Paul says they exchange the truth for a lie. Uh, The math of it is this. The knowledge of God's existence plus a sinful rebellion against that God equals idolatry. That is where every false religion comes from. It comes from people 
Having this innate sense, I know that there's a God and I got to do something with that knowledge. But they refuse to submit to the true God. And so they make up one of their own. Sometimes that God has been called Baal. Sometimes it is called Allah. Sometimes it's called money. Sometimes it's called me, myself, and I. There's many idols that are out there, but it all stems from the same place of knowing that God exists and sinfully refusing to bow before him. And it turns out that with every religion that is not the true religion, when you make up your God, you also have to make up what your God wants, what your God expects, how to get his attention, how to get his grace. Now back to our story. The 450 prophets of Baal just tried their hardest to get their God's attention, and they woefully failed. Now what does this lowly, all-by-himself Elijah going to do to try to get his God's attention? Skip down to verse 33. Then he, that is Elijah, arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, They fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now there's a lot of exciting stuff there, isn't there? But for our purposes, Notice, what did Elijah do to get his God's attention? 450 prophets of Baal just tried everything they could do. One lowly, small, tiny prophet of Yahweh by himself. What does he do? Did he limp around, crying out, begging his God to show up? Did he start cutting himself? And ranting and raving, doing everything he could think of to make his God look upon him with grace. No, what Elijah did 
Let's pray. He prayed and God showed up. And how did Elijah know that that is all that he needed to do? Did you see it there at the end of verse 36? O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and, here it is, I have done all these things at your word. Okay, that included the setting up the altar as the way he did, dumping water on it as the way he did. But then God told him, this is how you get my attention, Elijah. This is how you get me to show up. This is where you are to meet with me and where I promise to meet with you. Pray. Just pray. How did Elijah know that? His God told him. Prophets of Baal did not have a God that told them what to do, where to meet with him, how to receive grace. Elijah's God told him. And he said, it is in prayer. God revealed it to him in his word. And God has revealed these truths to us as well in his word. Historically, Christians have come to call the places where we meet with God as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace are the places that we are told that we can ordinarily find God. God doesn't say you need to guess, uh, guess and, and, and try to figure out where I am. He, he, he's not playing hide and seek. He's saying these are the places that you come and find me. These are the places that you come and meet with me in these ordinary means of grace. What are those places? There are multiple ways to group them and state them, but the standard that came to us from church history is primarily a list of three places that God meets us. One is the word, two are the sacraments, and three is prayer. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Question 89 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The answer, his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Okay, what is meant by the sacraments is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And did you hear in that question the qualification? These are the ordinary places, the ordinary means of receiving grace from God. That means that there's room for God to give us grace in other areas and in other ways. He does that in his providence. But the ordinary ways are through the word and prayer. One more example. This is from the first paragraph of chapter 14 of the second London Baptist Confession, your confession, I believe. It says this, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. We hear that testimony of that man that's going to be baptized in a few weeks, the ministry of the Word. But then that paragraph goes on, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, it is increased and strengthened. There we have the three ordinary means listed for us once again. The word, the sacraments, again, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. 
Those are the places that God says we are to meet with him. Those are the places where God says we receive grace from him. Now, let this hit home for a moment, because consider our thoughts and in our flesh, and we see this in the church, especially in America, all over the place, all the time. Because we are tempted to try to get God's grace in places that are not on that list. For instance, like the prophets of Baal that tried to impress him with their great number, we too can tend to think that God is impressed with great numbers, with flashiness, with, with big offerings and, and loud music and such to impress him. Or, or like the prophets of Baal that tried to get his attention through their own suffering, we too can sometimes think that, that God will feel bad for us if we mope around and if, if we feel pain or, or something along those lines. Or again, like the prophets of Baal, we too can think that our fervency Our sincerity, if we just try hard enough to be genuine for him, then surely God will be won over by our tears or by our volume or by our flowery words. But none of those things, none of those places are where God says that we are to find him. Where we are told to meet with him is in in his word, especially sitting under the preaching of his word like we are doing right now but also reading his word, encouraging one another with his word, and so on. It's also in the sacraments, initially identifying ourselves with Christ and his people through baptism, and then continuing to identify ourselves with them through the Lord's Supper. But third, it is in prayer. That place where God told Elijah, this is where you meet with me. This is where you receive from me. This is where you get me to show up. And that is what I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about is that place of prayer where God says, come and receive from me. Come. If prayer is a place where God says we are to go to receive grace from him, then it is only wise of us to ask What kind of prayer actually receives God's grace? In other words, what does a prayer that results in the reception of God's grace look like? And this is where I want to take us to Luke chapter 11. You can turn there if you like. In Luke 11, the disciples of Jesus ask this question, and this is why I wanted to go to Luke as opposed to Matthew. Luke 11, verse 1, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. The John here is John the Baptist, but what we have is a wonderful request that every Christian ought to ask of our Lord at some point. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, it's not like the disciples had no clue about what prayer was. They grew up and they lived in a religious society where prayer was commonplace. They knew the Old Testament scriptures that is full of prayers. The disciples knew what prayer looked like in theory, 
And so what they were asking Jesus here is not about prayer in general, but they're asking Jesus to teach them how to pray effectively. Or with the language that we've been using so far, Jesus, teach us how to pray a prayer that God listens to, that God gives grace in response to. What does that look like? And Jesus' answer is what we call the Lord's Prayer. You can find another version of that in Matthew 6, but we'll stick with Luke 11 here. And we'll just very quickly break down this prayer into five parts, or really five requests that Jesus tells us are found in a prayer that invites God's grace. And I'll just give it to you here all at once, and then we'll pick them apart. First, your name. Second, your kingdom. Third, give us. Fourth, forgive us. And fifth, lead us. I'll give those to you again as we make our way through. So first we begin with your name. We begin with a request about God's name, but we especially need to note what name Jesus uses for God here. Look at the middle of verse 2. We read, Father, hallowed be your name. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples asking Jesus to teach us to pray. And the first word they hear out of Jesus' mouth is Father. Now, this would have been surprising to them. Because who can call God in that such a close familial sense? Who can do that? It was common and it was right to address God in majestic terms. Oh, most high, Lord almighty, sovereign one. It is right and good to call God those things. But Jesus' model here says, call him father. This is one of the unique things about Christianity over and opposed to all those other religions, including that religion of Baal. When we call God our Father, we are not just acknowledging him to be our maker and the source of all things, though he is those things. There are other religions that actually will call their God Father as well, and they mean that in he is the source. But what makes Christianity, Christianity unique is that in Christ, we get to call God our Father because he has adopted us as his children. We get to mean it in a familial sense. And we see right here from the start, with the very first word of the Lord's Prayer, that a prayer that receives the grace of God is a prayer that begins with an emphasis on the close relationship that we have with our God. We are to come to our God in a warm, assured way knowing that his affection is already set upon us in Christ. There is nothing that we have to do, like those prophets of Baal, nothing that we have to do to get his attention. We already have his attention won for us in Christ. Very often, I think we as Christians Really, I think anybody with a conception of a God treats him as if he's some cosmic vending machine 
where if we just put in the right amount of praise, he'll spit out what we want. Or, or, or treat God like he's a magic genie. If we rub that lamp just in the right way, then we'll get God to show up. And, and so we, we think of him as being cold and, and capricious and unpredictable like Baal is. But Jesus tells us here, no, when you come to your God in prayer, come knowing that he sees you as his child. And he has told you that I love you. You are in my son and I am well pleased of my son, which means I am well pleased of you. He is not some cold deity that we have to get to be pleased with us in any way. He already is. He is your heavenly father, Christian, because you have placed your faith in his son. So we have father. And then the first request is hallowed be your name. That's a weird word, isn't it? Hollywood, we, we don't use it anymore. Maybe you think of Halloween, and yeah, it's related because of that. To, to hollow something is to declare it to be holy, to declare it to be sacred. It, it is to set it apart and to make it stand out. And in this instance, it is the name of God that is being set apart. It is the name of God that is hollowed. So prayer is to begin with thinking of God as a father, but then it is also to begin with praise. It is to begin with worship. Back in 1 Kings 18, I don't expect you to remember it, but the prophets of Baal began their prayer this way. They had an address. Okay, we had an address, father. They had an address, O Baal. And then the next words were answer us. It's like, oh, Baal, and then it's just all about me, all about what we need. That was the focus of their prayer. Their focus wasn't upon Baal. It was upon themselves. It wasn't a prayer that said, oh, Baal, you are so great. No, it was just, oh, Baal, answer us. But do you remember how Elijah began his prayer? He says, O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel. And he goes on and on and on. But he begins declaring who God is. He begins by declaring God's praise. Father, hallowed be your name. The concern for Christian prayer is not first what is on my list. Now, there are times for flare prayers where all you've got is like 10 seconds and say, oh, God, help. That's legitimate, right? That's fine when you just have time to shoot up a flare. But usually, the pattern of our prayers to begin with praise. When we ask our God to hollow his name, we are asking him to act in such a way that his holiness is put on display. We are asking that he would act according to his innate sacredness. So this is the first request of a prayer that receives God's grace. Father, hallowed be your name. The second request is concerned with God as well. 
and is concerned with his kingdom. The petition at the end of verse 2 is more fully, your kingdom come. Come where is a good question to ask. And what we mean is come here. Come on earth. God's kingdom is the place where God rules without interruption. And in praying this, when we ask that God's kingdom would come, we are saying that we cannot bring it about. No politician here, no party, no nation, no leader, no one is capable of ushering in the kingdom that needs to be here, that is going to make all things right. And so we pray, God, your kingdom come. We are praying for Christ to return. We are praying for God to fulfill all of his plans, all of his purposes, and all of his promises. If the first request of the prayer that receives God's grace concerns his praise, then the second request concerns his promises. It's saying, God, come and do everything that you've promised to do. Now, take a step back and note that with these first two requests that are concerned with God's name and with God's kingdom, what we are most concerned about as Christians is not ourselves, but with God. Lord, we want to see you magnified. We want to see you victorious. We want to see you fulfill your promises. That is our chief concern as Christians. And we express that in our prayers, which is the kind of prayer that God answers. The kind of prayer that he gives his grace through. A defining characteristic of Christian prayer is that more than anything else, we want to see our God praised. And we want, we want to see our God's promises come to pass. Which means that all other requests that we have are subservient to those. Everything else that is on our hearts and on our minds, going on in our lives, we say, God, those things come underneath your praise, and those things come underneath your promises. These requests that I have, God, if they mean that, that you're going to say yes to them because they expand your praise and they fulfill your promises, then praise be to you. But if it means that you're going to say no to my requests, then praise be to you because what I am most concerned with is your praise and your promises. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. But just because God is transcendent, just because he's huge and ginormous as he is, it does not mean that he does not care for us. One of the most beautiful things in the experience of being a Christian is that in God's wisdom and in his kindness, his grand plans that result in the eternal glorification of his name always coincides with the good of his people. We are small creatures, and we are fickle creatures, and yet God cares for us. In 1 Peter 5, 7 we are told that we are to be casting all of our anxieties on him. We might ask, why, Peter? And he says it's because he cares for you. 
He cares for you, Christian. Your small, tiny, insignificant life that in the timeline of eternity, which extends forever that way and forever that way, is just a blip. He cares deeply for you. He says, call me father. I want to hear your requests. I want to hear the requests of my children. And so in verse 3, we unabashedly pray the third petition, which is give us. Give us what? In Luke's version here, give us each day our daily bread. That sure seems small compared to God's great name and the great promises that he is coming to pass. But he says, pray for simple things like your daily bread. We could expand that. The need for shelter, the need for health, the need for somewhere to lay our head, the need for companionship, the need for income. Whenever we take those things for granted, we are foolishly thinking that we can live life on our own apart from him. It has wisely been said that prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. What we are doing in this request of give us is not being selfish like gimme, gimme, gimme. Rather, it is an acknowledgement that we are needy. We are humbly declaring that we need him for even the mundane things in life. The fourth and fifth petitions move us into the spiritual realm for our needs. And the fourth one is forgive us. Again, verse four, and forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Since you have come to Christ when once you were lost, you know firsthand the importance of forgiveness as a great need for every sinner. But this forgiveness that Jesus speaks of here is not just the once and for all forgiveness that is declared to us at our justification at that moment of salvation. It is also the ongoing forgiveness that we need to maintain fellowship with our Lord. The relational forgiveness that God so quickly gives to us when we have for a moment gone astray and his spirit has convicted us and brought us back. It should be noted that this petition right here about forgiveness is really what sets the Lord's prayer as being unique compared to other kinds of prayers that unbelievers may have because unbelievers by definition have not sought the Lord for forgiveness. They belong in the prophets of Baal. But those who have sought and found the forgiveness of our God belong in the line of the disciples of Christ. But this petition for forgiveness is interesting in that it gives a reason for why God can forgive us. It is because, he says, we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer makes a bigger deal of this. But what we know from other scriptures is that what Jesus is not saying here is that the reason why God can forgive us is because we are so good and, and so kind and so gracious ourselves to forgive others 
That would make God's forgiveness something that can be bought. It would make it something that we can earn. No, what is going on here is the truth that when we are a forgiven people, we become a forgiving people. Paul expresses it this way in Ephesians 4.32 when he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, who are we to not forgive others when our God has forgiven us of so much? Our offering of forgiveness is evidence of our reception of forgiveness. Forgiven people forgive. And so we ask the Lord to forgive us because we continue to struggle. We continue to fall short. We continue to stumble. And that launches us into our fifth point, which is lead us. Lead us. The last sentence in verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. You know, the Christian life sure would be a breeze if it weren't for temptation. It'd be cake, wouldn't it? What is it that gets us knocked off that narrow path? Our fleshly desires that find temptation so alluring. What is it that keeps us from running the race of faith perfectly? Well, it's the wiles of the world that call out to us. What is it that causes us to stumble and sometimes to fall? It's that sweet voice of the evil one. That same voice that spoke in the garden speaks today. And so this prayer that God would lead us not into temptation is a prayer that God would help us to run the race of faith successfully. That he would grant us perseverance that that we would not stumble and fall away that that he would keep us and protect us all the way to glory very practically when we ask god to lead us not to temptation we are asking him to give us eyes to see temptation for what it really is and to see those lies quickly and that he would hearts to resist that temptation It is the prayer that our affections would be so enamored with our God that nothing else could ever compete with him in our sight. Lord, lead us not into temptation. This, this is the kind of prayer that invites God's grace. This is the kind of prayer that that God says he will meet us in. First, God, glorify yourself. Second, God, fulfill your promises. Third, God, by your grace, meet our practical needs. He cares for those. Fourth, God, by your grace, meet our spiritual needs. Forgive us for our failings. Fifth, God, by your grace, keep us all the way to the end. It's a prayer that doesn't try to manipulate God. But rather, it's a prayer that acknowledges God for who he is. 
And it's a prayer that is full of humility. It's a prayer that recognizes that, that God cares most about his own praise and his own plans. But in his mercy and his grace, he also cares for his people. And he tells us, come to me with your petitions because I care for you. There is much more that could be said and, 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 and could be mined from this simple prayer that Jesus gives to us. But I think we've come a long way in seeking to answer our question of what does a prayer that receives God's grace look like? Christian, God tells us that prayer is a means of grace. You don't have to wonder what it is your God expects of you in order to receive from him. You don't have to be like those 450 prophets of Baal who are crazy, nuts, because their God didn't reveal anything to them. Our God has been so gracious to not only reveal himself, but also to reveal those places where we are to commune with him, to meet with him, to receive from him. And one of those vital, key, and simple places is prayer. He is so gracious not only to tell us, meet me in prayer, but he is so gracious to also tell us, this is what a prayer looks like that I'm going to answer, that I'm going to give my grace to. God is not stingy with his grace, Christian. And if that's your experience that you do think he is stingy, which is what we think in our heart of hearts sometimes, because if we're honest, that's what we're like. Have faith that he is who he says he is in his word. Believe him. Trust him. And he will give you his grace. He will give you what you need. He invites you even today. Come and receive my grace. So may we be faithful to take him up on that offer. And may we be blessed when we see him answer our prayers with his grace. And let's do that now in prayer. Well, Father, hallowed be your name. We give you praise for who you are. 